Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise. You never know, but it's the best from the golden age of radio. We'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A 64-year-old shopkeeper is found murdered, beaten to death in the back room of his store. The body bears the marks of a savage attack. There's no trace of the killer. Your job? Get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, February 19th. It was cloudy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 10.56 p.m. when we got to 1016 South 12th Street, the Apex Men's Shop. Yes, sir? Friday and Romero, Central Homicide. ID card. Oh, yeah, Sergeant. Been waiting for you. Uh, my partner's upstairs in the back talking to the victim's wife. You answered the call, did you? Yeah, that's right. Miles and Kiever, Unit 16R. Who are you? Uh, Miles. Uh, Kiever's talking to Mrs. Wolford, victim's wife. She found the body. What's that up above? How's that? Music up there somewhere. Sounds like a party. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a dance place. Takes a hole up the floor of the building. A Wonderland Dance Hall, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. When was the body found, Miles? Do you know? Well, the wife wasn't very definite about it. She told us she came in the shop here about 10 o'clock tonight. The place was wide open, nobody behind the counter. Said she looked around a while, finally found her husband's body in the storeroom back there. Nothing for a weak stomach. It's pretty brutal. What else do you have to say? Well, not too much. She's pretty closed mouth. Probably the shock of finding her husband like that. I don't know. Do you want to show us where he is, Miles? Yeah, it's straight back this way. The uh, victim's name is uh, Joseph Wilford. Owner of the store ran it himself. Wife says he's had the business here for 23 years. It's a typical men's shop. You can see that. Mm-hmm. That's around the left. In here. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. He uh, used this for a storeroom, I guess. Uh-huh. Well, that's it. As far as we know, the body hasn't been touched. Yeah. Sure took a terrible beating. An elderly man, huh? My wife said he was 64 last birthday. She couldn't think of any enemies he has. Anybody want to do this? Where'd he keep his cash? Did she tell you that? No, cash register, I guess. Can't be sure Leighton Prince gets here. Yeah. Did you call the crime lab yet? I'm waiting for you fellas. You want to call him now? Would you mind? Oh, sure, sir. Say, you might as well call the coroner while you're at it. Tell him there's no big rush. Yeah, right. Take a look around here, Joe. Looks like a tornado ripped through. Yeah. Chair overturned. Clothes all over the floor. Yeah. Come here, Ben. Mm-hmm. Look at the body here. Yeah? His arms tied behind his back. Ordinary clothesline row. What's that cloth knotted around his neck? I don't know. Looks like it could be a woman's slip, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Whoever it was, they weren't taking any chances he'd live through it. The wounds on the head here, and the neck, see? Yeah. Looks like he was stamped on by boots, something like that. Maybe a narrow heel. Sure brutal. Doesn't look too much like a robbery motive. Not from the beating he took, anyway, huh? Looks like he might have had a taste for art. All over the wall here, pin-up girls, fancy calendars. I talked to the crime lab, Sergeant. On the way out. Oh, thanks, Miles. Notified Deputy Coroner. Anything else I can do for you? Yeah, would you mind getting the wife down here, Ms. Wilford? We'd like to talk to her. Sure, right away. Thank you. How's she feeling? Any hysterics? No, she's pretty quiet. She went upstairs to rest. A couple of housekeeping rooms up there. 
Guess that's where she and her husband live. Well, tell her she doesn't feel too well. We, we could come up there and talk to her. Right, sir. Right. Well, what do you think? I don't know. We'll see what the crime lab can come up with. We can start checking around the neighborhood after we talk to the wife, huh? Mm-hmm. Let me take a look here. What's that there? It's funny. Not much place in the haberdashery for things like this, look. A woman's nightgown. Black lace, huh? Mm-hmm. Packed in a gift box. Is that a card there? Yeah. Let's see if we can read it without touching it. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, to a beautiful girl, you've been away too long, hoping we'll never be parted again. It's signed, Joseph Wilford. Seems a little funny, huh? Yeah, it does. Maybe his wife's been on a trip. He's going to give it to her as a present. When's the last time you gave your wife a black lace nightgown? p.m. The two officers who'd answered the call, Miles and Keever, brought the victim's wife, Mrs. Agnes Wilford, downstairs, and Ben and I questioned her. She was a small, slight woman, dark hair, dark brown eyes, a sharp nose and chin. She looked to be in her early 50s. She said that both she and her husband had emigrated to America from northern Germany 25 years before. We asked her how her married life with Mr. Wilford had been, but she kept dodging the question. We asked her how she happened to find the body. The body's just as you found it, Mrs. Wilford. You didn't disturb anything? No, I just came back from a friend's and looked, and I saw him, and he was dead. Somebody killed Joseph. And you're pretty sure that your husband wasn't having any trouble with anybody? No enemies? No, he didn't have any enemies not to do this. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you lived upstairs in the back of the store with Mr. Wilford. Is that right, ma'am? For a long time, yes. We lived upstairs in the rooms. It was nice. Saved money for rent. Well, do you have any idea at all why your husband's dead, why somebody would want to kill him? There was money in the store. They'd kill for that. You policemen. People kill for money, you know that. Well, do you know where Mr. Wilford kept his money, ma'am? There was a wooden drawer on the table in the back room. He would keep the money there. But I looked when I came in first. It was empty. Well, was there any money in that drawer tonight? Do you know that? Oh, yes. Three, four hundred dollars anyway. Joseph always kept it in there. That terrible place up above the music all the time. The noise... You should make them be quiet. The dance halls have been up there for a year tonight anyway. They should be quiet. Yes, ma'am. Uh, about the money Mr. Wilford had in the store. Maybe a thousand dollars. Seven, eight hundred, maybe that anyway. And then his wristwatch he had on, that's gone too. Well, can you give us a description of the watch, Mrs. Wilford? What make it was, what it looked like? Oh, yes, I can give that to you. It's white gold, expensive. It's writing on the back. Agnes, Joseph. One birthday, I gave it to him. Have you been away from your husband recently, ma'am? I mean, on a trip or anything like that? No, I haven't been away. Why? Well, we don't mean to upset you at a time like this, but... Would you know if your husband had any women friends? Miss Wilford? If you have a cigarette, I'd like one. Oh, yes, ma'am. Here you are. Thank you very much. Thank you for your light, miss. Thank you. Do we have to talk about it? I'm afraid so, ma'am. Most of them I know. For ten years it's been like this. There were many of them. Young women. Joseph didn't try to hide it from me. I knew all about it. You continued to live with your husband all this time, ma'am? I did. He'd bring the girls to the shop here sometimes. When they'd come, I'd go away for a while. After they were gone, I'd come back. Joseph and I would never talk about it. You mean you never had any arguments with your husband about the women? No. He never lied to me about the girls. He had them, that's all. It was something he expected me to understand. I see. Uh, You say you knew several of these women your husband went out with. Could you give us their names, please? Yes, there's an address book upstairs in Joseph's desk. The names are in there. I see. Would you mind showing us that address book now, please? Yes, we can go upstairs. I'll get it for you. There's a... One question I'd like to ask you, Mrs. Wilford, if yes. you don't mind. Yes? About your husband, ma'am. I don't know. Hurt very much at first. And then by and by, it didn't hurt so much. Time, I guess. Habit. Beg your pardon? A habit. If you want to, you can get used to anything. Yes, ma'am. Even a man who doesn't love you anymore. We went upstairs to the housekeeping rooms where Mrs. Wilford gave us her husband's personal address book. 
She also gave us a description of his wristwatch, which had been removed from the body, along with the name of the jeweler who'd sold her the watch. It was a Hamilton with a diamond-studded dial. The crime lab crew arrived downstairs and began their routine investigation. We finished questioning the victim's wife, and then we started checking the neighborhood. Only a few of the stores in the area were still open. We found only one possible witness, a newsboy, who told us that he'd seen an attractive, dark-haired woman enter the store earlier in the night at about 8.30 p.m. His description of her was only sketchy. Another hour of checking the neighborhood, and we went back to the store. Lieutenant Lee Jones and the crime lab crew finished checking over the entire layout. They went back downtown to give a thorough examination to what physical evidence that they'd found. The deputy coroner arrived and removed the body. Together with Hubka and Forbes from Homicide, Ben and I spent most of the next day checking with store owners in the immediate neighborhood of Wilford's haberdashery. They could tell us nothing we hadn't already found out. We got the description and serial numbers of the victim's missing wristwatch, notified the pawn shop detail, and got out a broadcast on it. 3.45 p.m., we checked by the office. We got a slow enough start on this thing, huh? Everybody tells us the same story. Yeah, seems to be pretty common knowledge. He had a lot of girlfriends. I guess we better start checking out the names in that address book, huh? Sure beats all, doesn't it, Joe? What's that? Mrs. Wilford, ten years, her husband's dating other women right in front of her. It isn't normal. Can't see why she didn't just pack up and leave. Well, it's kind of hard to figure it out. Maybe she was still in love with him. I wonder how Forbes and Hubka made out. I'll check the book, see if we've got a call. Okay. See. No? No word from him, huh? No, Lee Jones called from the crime lab, wants us to check with him. I'll call him. Okay, fine. 2667, please. That's right. Guess we'd better check with the morgue, too, huh? See if they got the body posted yet? Yeah. Uh, I leave. Romero. Uh, what was it? Did you get the name? I see. All right, well, bye. What do you have? Lee talked to the coroner already. Wilfred died about 9 o'clock. Cause of death was strangulation. Mm-hmm. How about those wounds on the head and on the neck? That didn't do it. The cloth died around his neck. It was a woman's slip, all right. Yeah. Did he pick up anything off it? Any laundry marks? He did better than that. Yeah? He got the name of the laundry. After checking for all stains and markings on the woman's slip, which had been found knotted around the murder victim's neck, Lee Jones had examined it under a special fluorescent light. He found a type of marking used by only one large laundry service in the city. We checked with the managers of the laundry company and found that the slip had been cleaned by them for a Miss Elise Dressler. She had a North Hudson Street address. We started checking on her. The first lead came from the dead man's personal address book. We found the name of Elise Dressler listed along with her address and telephone number. There was a single word scribbled beside her name and enclosed with parenthesis. It said Max. That was all. 5.42 p.m. We drove out to the address, a Spanish-style apartment house on North Hudson. We rang, but there was no answer. The apartment manager told us Miss Dressler worked as a dancer at a nightclub on West 7th Street. Ben and I drove to the club, a high-priced theater restaurant which was newly opened. We were told Elise Dressler wasn't due there until 9 p.m. We had a couple of ham and cheese sandwiches and some coffee at a lunch counter, and we checked back at the club a few minutes past nine. The show was already started. We located the Dressler girl in her room backstage. She was a tall, fairly attractive blonde. We started questioning her. Can you tell us where you were last night, miss? Yeah, all right. Here, I work every night but Monday. We close then. What time did you get here last night? Just about eight o'clock. I had something to eat, and then I changed my costume and went to work. Do you know if Mr. Wilfred had any enemies? No. Maybe somebody he was having trouble with? No, maybe that wife of his. That's none of my business. I wouldn't know. You can't think of anybody at all who might want him out of the way? No, I don't think so. He and Max Hollins had some arguments, but that's the only time I saw Joe mad at anybody. Who's this Max Hollins? He's the man who arranged for me to come out from New York. Joe and Max have been friends for a long time. What were the arguments about, Miss Dressler? Do you remember? Yeah, about me. You see, Max brought me out here, and I suppose at first he thought he owned me. He didn't think I should go out with any other men but him. Max is stubborn sometimes. Well, so am I. I like Wilford, so I went out with him. I went out with Max, too. Well, these arguments they had about you, would you say that they were pretty mad at each other, Max and this Mr. Wilford? Only last week. Max was very angry with Joe, but I think he got over it. Uh, could we talk together later? It's almost time for me to go on. I better get outside. Oh, sure. Excuse me. Yeah, I'll get it. Okay. We'll wait backstage here for you, Miss Dressler. Is that all right? Yeah, fine. Oh, that's all right. I still have a few minutes. Well, how about the last time you were in Wilford's store, Miss Dressler? Can you remember that? Not exactly. At least six months ago. I hardly ever went to see Joe there. Did you ever have any occasion to leave any clothing with Wilfred in his store? Maybe for a cleaning alteration? No, I never left him. Maybe it's possible they could be there. How do you mean? Well, I have some nice slips, you know. First I sent them out, but Joe said he knew a very nice French laundry to do them. 
He'd come to my place, pick him up, and then take him to the laundry. Maybe he could have left him in his shop one day. Well, would anybody besides yourself have access to the clothes in your apartment? Maybe a roommate? No, I live by myself. I have the only key to the door except Max Hollins. He's got one. He lives in my apartment house, the upstairs floor. Nobody else has a key. Did you send in clothing to the French laundry with Mr. Wilford recently? Yesterday I did. Two nice slips of mine. But Joe Wilford didn't call for him. I sent him over with Max. How'd that happen? Max said he might as well take him. He was going down to that neighborhood by the haberdashery. Oh? I wanted to see Wilford anyway. Max said he wanted to fix up their argument. We continued questioning the Dressler girl after she finished her first act at the theater restaurant. She told us that she hadn't seen Max Holland since early the day before. She was taken downtown where she gave us a full statement. Further questioning got us the information that the argument between the two men, Joseph Wilfred and Max Hollins, over the affections of Elise Dressler was far from settled at their last meeting. The girl admitted that it was a serious argument and that it ended up in a fist fight between the two men. She said Max Hollins was out of town for the night, but that he'd return early the next evening for work. He was employed as manager of a room service department at a large downtown hotel. 11.30 p.m., Ben and I drove back to the apartment house on North Hudson, and together with the building manager, we checked Max Holland's apartment. We found nothing. The manager told us Holland's car was parked in the apartment garage, so we went down and gave it a routine check. Under the front seat, we found a paper bag with a pair of gloves in it. There were blood stains on both gloves. We dropped him off at the crime lab for examination. At 6 o'clock the following night, Ben and I went to the room service department of the downtown hotel where Hollins was employed. Sorry, sir, Mr. Hollins is late this evening. He should be here pretty soon. He notified you he'd be in late? Well, he called, yes. Probably be here in 10 or 15 minutes. I'm his assistant. Can I help you? No, it's all right. We'll wait. All right. Pardon me. I wonder if we could look at your wristwatch, please. Well, surely. It's just a few minutes past No, we just want to look at the watch if we could. Oh, sure. Here. Could you take it off? I'd like to look at the back of it if it's all right. Sure, that's all right. Here. Nice looking, isn't it? Just got it yesterday. That's so. Same engraving. Agnes to Joseph. Where'd you get this watch, sir? Why, what's the matter? Where'd you get it? Max Hollins. He sold it to me. February 21st, Friday, 6.30 p.m. We called the office and notified them that we'd located the wristwatch taken from the body of the murder victim, Joseph Wilfred. A stakeout was placed on the North Hudson Street apartment house. Ben and I stayed on at the hotel waiting the return of the murder suspect, Max Hollins. We talked to his assistant and found out that Hollins had a room in the hotel where he could sleep whenever he was called on to work late at night. 6.55 p.m. We called the office back and asked for a couple of men to be sent over to check the suspect's room. A few minutes later, Hollins himself showed up for work. Apparently, he'd been doing some drinking. Ben and I questioned him at his desk to stall for time until the men from the office could get to the hotel and make a thorough check of the suspect's room. Hollins was kept busy on the phone taking room service orders from the hotel guests. In between calls, we talked to him. I left Elise in the apartment, and then I took the few pieces of laundry she had and dropped them off at Wilfred's store. It was about 6 o'clock Wednesday night. You mentioned to the Dressler girl you wanted to see Mr. Wilfred. You wanted to patch up an argument you'd had with him? Yes, I just wanted to make sure he didn't have any bad feelings about it. Really wasn't much of an argument. How long did you stay at Wilfred's store, Mr. Hollins? Do you remember that? 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. We talked, and we had a glass of wine in the back room. No, it was upstairs. We drank the wine, and everything was all right. I guess it was about half past six when I left the store. It was all right then. Well, did anybody come in the store while you were there? No, it was nobody. How about Mrs. Wilfred? Was she in the store at all during the time you were there on Wednesday? No, he said she was gone for the day. She'd be back later on. We finished our talk, then I left. It was the last time I saw Joseph. It was a terrible thing for somebody to kill him. Excuse me again, please. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Room service, may I help you, please? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, could I suggest the palace court salad? Very nice, yes. Part of artichokes filled with fresh crab meat, a thousand island dressing garnished with slices of avocado. All right. Two orders. Some consomme? All right. French rolls, coffee, and brandy. 8.13. Yes, sir, right away. Fred, this order for 8.13? Yes, Mr. Holland. That's Mr. and Mrs. Morrow, 8.13. Make it quickly, please. Yes, sir. One of the best men I have, Fred. We keep a very high standard in our room service. Only the very best. They're all Geneva men. Yes, sir. Something else we'd like to find out. Twenty-one years ago, I came here to the hotel. It was nothing. They were serving garbage. Bad service. Very bad. I built our staff one by one. I did it. 
There's our staff list there. Finest waiters in the country. Henry Sanchez, Fred LaSalle, Conrad Lutz, Joe Zwick. Yes, sir. And Elmer Creighton. He waited on the president when he came to visit here from Washington. The president thought so much of our service, he wrote a letter to Elmer later on. No argument at all. I have the best spin in the country, the best food. 21 years to make it like it is. I did it all myself. I understand you and Wilford were old friends, Mr. Hollins. You knew him quite a number of years, is that right? Most of his life, yes. I knew Joseph in the old country. We came from the same town. Terrible thing that's happened. I always liked Joseph, a good friend. What about these arguments you had with him lately about the girl, Elise Dressler? They amount to anything? No, but it showed something typical of Joseph. Maybe it was the business he was in, dollars. It's all he thought about, the big dollars. He knew he had more money than I did. He thought he could do anything with it. How do you mean? About the girl, Elise. I took a visit to the old country three years ago, Strasbourg. That's where I learned my trade, from the best maitre d's in Europe. Mm -hmm. I met Elise on my way back in New York. You can check up on all my background. I worked at the Grand Hotel in Brussels. That's when it was the best. I was at the Carlton in London. Then I went to Venice, the Hotel Danielli. After, I went to the Hotel Majestic in Cannes. Yes, sir. What would that have to do with Miss Dresden? Very nice girl. We liked each other. When I came back here, I arranged for her to come out from New York. Took care of everything. I thought I'd like to marry her when she came here. How about it, Hollins? You want to tell us now? Uh, sir? Did you kill Wilford? Excuse me, please. Room service, may I help you, please? Yes, Mr. Sutter. Dinner for 12 tomorrow night in your suite. Your wife and I made up the menu. Certainly, Mr. Sutter. I'll check it over for you. Let's see. We serve caviar with Pliny to start with. Then the soup, uh, consomme, marjolaine. And with the soup, amontillado. Yes, sir, that's Spanish. Then crab legs, Saint-Denis. Sir? Saint-Denis, that's crab legs rolled in breadcrumbs. Fried in butter, served in a terrapin dish with bechamel sauce. After that, the Chateaubriand with... Truffle sauce, souffle potatoes, small green peas francais, and with that we serve Ponte Conne 27. Dessert, we shall have peach flambe, coffee, and liqueurs afterward. Yes, sir. Henry Sanchez and Conrad Lutz. They'll serve you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sutter. Good night, sir. Real gentleman, Mr. Sutter. He knows how to give a dinner party. The old school. Not so many of them left now. It's not like it used to be. People aren't the same anymore. Oh, yes, Fred. What is it? A uh, message for the officers here. Sergeant? Oh, thank you. Excuse us a minute. Oh, of course. What is it? It's from Forbes. They checked his room in the hotel. They didn't find anything. Better get him downtown, huh? Yeah. Hollins, we'll have to ask you to come downtown. Oh, oh yes. Get my... Top coat on here. Now there. Mm -hmm. Out this way, Sergeant. All right. You park your car in the hotel garage? No, sir. Outside on 10th Street. You can go out the side door then. This way. Just starting to rain. You both have your top coats? Yeah. Yes. Well, let's go. We're parked right down this way. What did Elise say, Elise Dressler? She said you had a fight with Wilford. You went to see him the same day he was murdered. Yes. It's terrible. It's too bad. Might as well tell you, sir, we've got the evidence. Quite a bit of it. All points to you. Oh? How is that? Well, the pair of gloves you were wearing, we found them. The wristwatch you took off the body, we found that, too. Yes. You want to tell us about it? I didn't use good sense. I didn't know what to do when I went to see him. But I... I didn't have it in my mind to kill him. God knows I tried to talk to him. I asked him, please, to stay away from Elise. I asked him as a friend. Yes, sir. All he said to me was, Max, I give her presents and she likes me. I have the money to give her what she wants, Max. You haven't got the money. That's what he said to me. You had a fight with him then? No, there wasn't any fight... I'm not sorry. I killed him, but I'm not sorry. You want to give us a statement about it downtown? I suppose. I'm not ashamed of it. All right, let's go. Down this way. Any man would have done the same. 
How could you hear such talk and not kill him? How about the wristwatch you took off of him, the money from the drawer? I wanted to hurt him more, even after he was dead, after I beat him and beat him. I knew it would be the worst way to hurt Joseph, to take his money. Here we are. In the back, Alan. Yeah. Sergeant. Yeah. I've told you now, I killed him. Don't you think I had a right to kill him? I wouldn't know. But he was like that. The first time you met Joseph, you would know he was bad. It was better for everybody for him to die. First time you met him, you would know that. I'm sorry, I wouldn't know, mister. What? The only time I met him, he was dead. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 4th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Max Hollins was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. Two armed bandits invade the home of an elderly couple in your city. The aging husband is tortured unmercifully before he reveals the hiding place of his valuables. The two thieves make good their escape. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Saturday, October 3rd. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Harry Didion, captain of robbery. My name's Friday. It was 11.38 p.m. when I got to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, room 5, treatment room. Joe? Hi, how's it going, Ben? We're not going to be able to talk to him anymore tonight. Doctor said maybe late tomorrow morning. How's the old man making out? He's resting a lot better. Doctor gave him a sedative. Old fellow sure had a rough time. Well, how about since I've been gone? Did he tell you anything else? No, just kept repeating the same thing. Two guys forced their way into his house, beat his wife, tortured him, took all the jewelry. That's about it. Yeah. Well, I put in a call to the office. I got a broadcast out on the information that we have. There's not much to go on. We should be able to pick up a little something more tomorrow. Doc said it's been a long time since he's seen anything like this, where they worked old man over. What'd they do to the fellow's hands, anyway? The doctor able to tell? He thinks they used a hat pin on him, something like that. It's sharp and thin. Mm. At least a dozen wounds in both hands. He's pretty badly burned, too. Yeah. Hard to imagine somebody that cold-blooded. 71-year-old man, soles of his feet a mass of burns. Wonder his heart stood up through the beating I gave him. Has he got a weak heart? He's had a little trouble, yeah. Terrific shock going through something like this at his age. Well, maybe we better check back at their house, huh? See how the old fellow's wife is doing, huh? Yeah, right. How's it shape up for you? Well, there's not an awful lot to go on yet. It wasn't a shot in the dark. I think we can count on that. Whoever the thieves were, they had some kind of an inside tip. The old man and his wife, well, they don't put up much of an appearance. You wouldn't be apt to figure that they had three or 4,000 in jewelry put away at home, would you? Maybe his wife might have some ideas. Yours is a lousy shame. Yeah. 
Yeah. You might halfway understand it. They just held them up, but working them over the way they did. There was no sense to it at all. Trying to show off what a couple of rough bums they are. Maybe that's it. Well, then let's do them a favor. Hmm? Let's show them what it costs. Ben and I got in the car and drove back to the Westlake Park area to the home of the robbery victim, 71-year-old Wendell McClung and his wife, Catherine McClung. It was a one-story wooden frame building, gray shingled, a typical modest four-room bungalow. The men from Unit 31R who'd answered the robbery call were still there, standing by. Another pair of men from robbery detail, Powers and Gonzalez, were checking the neighborhood for possible leads on the suspects. Inside the house, Ben and I found Mrs. McClung propped up in an easy chair in the living room. She was a small, chubby woman, gray-haired, looked to be in her 50s. We assured her her husband's condition wasn't critical. Outside of a small bruise on her forehead and a case of nervous upset, she seemed to be all right. In recounting the story of the holdup, Mrs. McClung told us the two bandits rang the front doorbell and forced their way into the house at gunpoint shortly before 8 o'clock that night. How about the color of their hair, ma'am? Their weight and height? No. I hardly saw a thing. Just that one look at them when they first pushed their way in. Well, how was that? They blindfolded you? Yes, they might just as well have. You see, when they started to hit Wendell, my husband Wendell, Mm -hmm. knock him down... I went after them, and one of them slapped me right across my face and knocked my glasses off. I see. I reached out to find them, but before I did, I guess one of those gangsters stepped on them. $35 glasses broke both of the lenses, just ruined the frames. Look at that. Of course, I can't see a thing without them. That's why I say I might as well have been blindfolded. And you didn't have a chance to notice what kind of clothes they had on and what they looked like at all? Well, they weren't shabby, I know that. Pretty well-dressed, if memory serves. Both of them in dark suits. If only they wouldn't have broken my glasses. How about their voices, Miss McClung? Anything unusual about the way they talked? Anything that they might have said? Miss McClung? No, I was just thinking. Oh. One's name was Sam, I remember that. The other one had sort of an accent of some kind. Maybe from the Midwest or, or maybe Texas. One of those funny people. Oh, funny people? How do you mean, ma'am? Well, you know, something like a cowboy or a farmer that... Funny kind of talk. Yeah, I see. Well, I guess I really should be inside fixing you men a cup of tea. Maybe if you'd just help me up That's here. all right, ma'am. You just sit there. When my sister Dolly gets here, it shouldn't be too long. I'll have her fix something. There's no need to bother, ma'am. We'd like to have you tell us this if you can. Did your husband do anything at all to provoke the two men? I mean, did he call out for help or try to get to a phone, anything like that? It was the jewelry we had. Wendell and I, just those few pieces... The two men seemed to know all about it, just as if they had a list of the things. That's so? Yes. When they first came in, they took my engagement ring and old brooch that belonged to my mother I was wearing. Then they got Wendell in that chair over there and tried to make him tell where our other things were. Well, now, is it pretty common knowledge around the neighborhood here that you and your husband own expensive jewelry, men? No, I don't think so. What the men seemed most interested in was Wendell's ring, his diamond signet ring. It was a beautiful thing for carrots. Yes, ma'am. We've got a description on that. That was when they tried to force your husband to tell him where it was hidden. Is that right? I never thought anybody'd be that cruel, officer. Downright cruel. They burned his hands and his feet, kept hitting him in the face with their fists. It was just terrible. Poor Wendell. He finally had to tell them. I see. They went and found the things, and then they came back in here and ripped out the phone. Warned us not to move. Mm-hmm. And then they left. I just broke down and cried, officer. To see poor Wendell there, the way they abused him. Yes, ma'am, we understand. You're sure he's going to be all right? What did the doctor say? Well, he said there's no danger, ma'am. Mr. McClung's resting comfortably now. Well, that must be my sister. You want to stay right now. here with Ms. McClung, Ben? I'll get that. Yeah, right. Joe. Hi, Jess. You and Powers do any good? I've been checking through the neighborhood three or four blocks around. Not an awful lot. A lot of people know the McClungs. Few of them know about their having jewelry. None of them saw anything unusual going on tonight. The thieves used the car. We know that. Didn't anybody at all spot it? I'm not sure, but there's one possibility. Uh, Some of the neighbors said a young kid was peddling magazines down this block tonight, Mm -hmm. just about the same time as a robbery. He might have spotted something. Oh, that's fine. Where is the boy? Where does he live? Well, that's what we asked the neighbors. Yeah? Nobody knows. A supplementary broadcast and an APB was gotten out containing what description we had on the two hold-up men, plus descriptions of each article of jewelry taken from Mr. and Mrs. McClung. The following morning, along with Jess Gonzalez and Johnny Powers, we continued canvassing the immediate neighborhood of the hold-up. 
The only thing we got was a fair description of the boy who had been selling magazines the night before in the vicinity of the McClung house and also the names of the magazines he was peddling. Monday morning, 9 a.m., we got in touch with the local distributor for the publications, got a list of five boys who sold for them in that general area, and started checking them out. Third on the list was a Bill Newsom, a sophomore student at a nearby parochial high school. He lived a half a dozen blocks from the McClungs. We checked at his house, but his mother told us he wasn't at home. I'm sure Billy won't be long. Thank you, ma'am. Right in here, officer. Just go ahead. Well, thank you. Sit down, won't you? Yes, thank you very much. It must be him now. Billy, in here. Yeah, ma. Come in here, Bill. Two police officers to see you. Huh? Bill, this is Sergeant Friday and Sergeant Romero, my son, Bill. How are you, ma'am? Would you excuse me? I'm going to have to start fixing dinner. You go right ahead and have your talk with Bill. I'll be out in the kitchen. All right, ma'am. Thank you very much. You speak right up now, Bill. Try and help the officers all you can. How can I help you? What's it all about? We understand you have a magazine out in the neighborhood, Bill. Your mother tells us you were out selling this last Saturday night. Yes, sir, that's right. Thursdays and Saturdays, they're my regular nights. Mm -hmm. I don't really sell, though. How do you mean, son? Well, you see, I line up all my customers ahead of time. I got a regular list of people they buy from me every week. I don't do any door-to-door selling. That way, it's not much good. I see. Do you have a regular customer on your list by the name of McClung, Bill? That's M-C-C-L-U-N-G? Yeah, Mr. McClung, once a month, he takes a gardening magazine. Comes out the last week in every month. Were you over near the McClung's place Saturday night? Do you remember? Yeah, I was. I went right by it. I've got customers all along that block there. Say, this wouldn't be about that robbery. That's right, Bill. You heard about it? After church Sunday, a couple of kids who go to the same school I do, they live right around the McClung's. They heard about it. What time was it when you went by there Saturday night? You remember? Oh, about a couple of minutes after nine, I guess. Maybe a quarter after. When I heard about the robbery on Sunday, I thought maybe I ought to tell somebody about it. I wasn't sure about it, though. You know, I didn't want to be a pest. What do you mean, son? You weren't sure about what? This uh, dark blue sedan I saw parked on the street there, just a couple of houses down from the McClung's place. The reason I even noticed it was because it was a new car, almost a brand new car, but it looked like the license plates on it were kind of old. Mm-hmm. What else? Well, I uh, delivered some magazines to Mrs. Uh, Brubaker, and I got my money for them. And then coming down the stairs, I saw these two men. I'm not sure they came out of Mr. McClung's house. It was dark, you know, but I thought that's where they came from. Anyway, they went down the street, got in the car, and took off. Seemed to be in a hurry. Well, what did the two men look like, Bill? Did you have any idea? No, I didn't see them too well. Wasn't too close to them. I was about from, oh, here to across the street from them. How about their clothes? You notice them at all? Yeah, they had suits on, dark suits. I know that. How would you describe their build, son? Medium, tall, fat, skinny? What would you say? Why, I think I'd say medium. Yeah, both of them medium. Now, about that car, Bill, you said it was a dark blue sedan, new model, and the license plates look kind of old, is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's how I first noticed it parked down by the restaurant. How's that? About uh, 7.15, when I started my route uh, down on South Benson, I saw the same car parked outside the restaurant down there. Forget the name of the place now. It just opened about a month ago. You're sure it was the same car? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's why I noticed it again when I saw it up by McClung's place. I thought it looked kind of terrible, brand-new car like that with old license plates. By any chance, son, do you remember the license number on those plates? No, sir, I didn't notice it at all. Mm. I'll tell you what, though. Yeah? If I see that car again, I'll be sure and get the number for you. Before we left the home of 16-year-old Bill Newsom, we got a complete description of the car which he'd seen parked near the McClung's home on the night of the robbery. He told us it was a 1950 Hudson, four-door sedan, dark blue, white sidewall tires. We relayed the information downtown to robbery detail. After we left the boy's house, we drove to the vicinity of the restaurant on South Benson, where the Newsom boy had first spotted the Hudson sedan. After making the rounds of several bars and coffee counters in the area, we started checking at the restaurant. It was newly open, just as the boy had described it, full of glass brick and fancy modern stonework. The main bar was situated just off the lobby, set apart from the main dining room. We interviewed the head bartender, and he thought he remembered serving two customers, answering the general description of the holdup men on the previous Saturday night. Not a bad-looking pair. They're in a little early, around 7.15, 7.30. They seem to be all right. Do you remember what they looked like at all? No, I didn't notice them that much, officer. Can you give us some general idea? Or on the young side, I guess. Not more than 28, 30. 
One of them talked like a Midwesterner, I think. You know, maybe uh, Arkansas, Texas, someplace like that. Well, could you give us any idea what they were wearing? Would well, you remember that? They had uh, suits on, dark suits. One had on a gray hat, and that's about all I remember. The reason I can place them at all is because Saturday was a pretty slow night at the bar. There's a new place here, you know. It takes a little time to cultivate a tree. Well, did these two men stop for dinner here? Do you remember that? No, no. They sat right here at the bar and had a couple of beers, and then they left. No dinner. Did you wait on them, sir? Y- yes, sir, I did. I served them both a bottle of beer, imported uh, Dutch beer. Uh-huh. You serve quite a bit of that imported beer, do you? No, not here, no. It's it's mostly cocktail trade. These uh, two fellows are the only ones I remember asking for. Well, do you remember if the two men handled the beer bottles at all? If they handled them? Well, I mean, did you pour it? <laughs> I filled up their glasses and set the bottle down. I guess they they did handle them. They emptied the bottles. I see. But they'd almost have to, wouldn't they? Would you still have those two bottles on hand? Well, let's see. Today's... Uh... The, yeah, I guess I would. They don't pick up the empties till sometime around the middle of the week. We'd like to take a look at them, if you don't mind. Oh, sure thing. You guys just want to follow me down the bar here? It's in the storeroom just in back. All right, let's go. It's uh, right back here, officer. Fine. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're right over here. Uh, there you go. Holland label. Only ones in the whole case. The same two I served those fellas. Yeah, I see. What do you think, uh, fingerprints? Maybe. Uh-huh. And as soon as you get the fingerprints, you can pick them up, can't you? Yeah, when we find the men they belong to. Monday, 6 p.m. We called Leighton Fingerprints, and they came out to check the evidence. First, they obtained a set of the bartender's fingerprints to serve as a basis for comparison. Then they dusted each of the empty beer bottles carefully. After the various sets of prints were lifted off the bottles, the men went back to the office to run the sets through classify their findings, and then turn them over to R&I for further checking. While they worked on it, Ben and I ducked out and had a sandwich and a bowl of soup for dinner. 7.25 p.m., we got back to the city hall. I sure am getting tired of the kind of food that guy serves, Joe. It seems to get worse every time I go in there. Yeah, wasn't very good, was it? I'm willing to bet I know his formula for the soup. Two gallons of hot water and one bouillon cube. Well, I've gone and done it before. I may still do it again. What's that? Bring my dinner from home in a paper sack. Pack a thermos full of hot coffee. It'd be a better deal than across the street. I don't know about that. You remember the last time you had your wife fix you up a thermos full of coffee? Yeah, I almost forgot. Wasn't any better than the stuff across the street. Hi. Where you two been? Hi, Jess. Getting something to eat. Leighton Prince called just a minute ago. Told him I'd give you the message. What's that? Well, the Prince, they lifted off those beer bottles. Checked them through the record bureau. Yeah. Found two sets. They made both of them. October 5th, Saturday, 7.40 p.m. The two sets of fingerprints which had been lifted from the empty beer bottles were checked through R&I and identified as those belonging to two known criminals. The first was Henry Vincent Moss, WMA, 29 years old. He'd served two terms in the county jail for burglary and grand theft auto and one term in San Quentin for robbery. The second was Ernest Robert Windsor, WMA, 28 years old. His home was listed as Little Rock, Arkansas, where he'd twice been convicted on charges of first-degree burglary and served time at the Arkansas State Penitentiary. We pulled the packages on both of the men, checked the last known addresses, but failed to locate either of them. To double-check their identification, we showed mug shots of Windsor and Moss to the robbery and torture victims, Mr. and Mrs. McClung. They gave positive identification of both men. So did the bartender at the restaurant where they'd stopped for the beer. We got out a broadcast and an all-points bulletin on them immediately. We began the routine legwork, checking with all the friends, relatives, and associates who were listed on the mama sheet in each suspect's package. As usual, it was a long, monotonous haul. One of the persons listed as fairly close to Ernest Windsor was an aunt of his, a Mrs. Marie Rolfe, whom we located at her home in the Echo Park District. No, I haven't seen Ernest in almost a year, Sergeant. What is it you want him for? I'd like to talk to you about a few minutes, Mrs. Rolfe, if you don't mind. I don't know how I can help you. You can come in for a minute if you want. I've got to go out and do some errands pretty soon, though. It's all right, ma'am. Thank you. Right in here. Sit down if you want. Thank you very much. Just got finished taking care of my little children here, giving them nice clean cages. Good singers. They all canaries, ma'am? Oh, yes. Oscar and Ethel, that's these two here. They're both genuine rollers. Their grandfolks came from Germany. Beautiful singers. Wonderful company. Yes, ma'am. My others are pretty, too. They're only choppers, though. Ma'am? Choppers. They're different than rollers. They sing much louder. 
Maybe not as nicely, but I don't like to play favorites. I like all of them. You have birds, Sergeant? No, ma'am. You should. I think everybody should have a canary in the house. Cheerful, you know. Wonderful company. Don't know what I'd do without mine. About your nephew, Ernest, Miss Rolfe, have you any idea at all how we could contact him? As I say, it's been almost a year since I last heard from him. What would this be about, Sergeant? Just a routine investigation, ma'am. We understand that you're quite close with your nephew, that he lived with you for a time. Yes, that's right, he did. When you come right down to it, Ernie's a good boy. He kept bad company, that's what I always said. Got him in trouble two or three times. I suppose you know that. You live alone here in the house, do you, Miss Rolfe? Yes, that's right, Sergeant. See, I'm a widow. Husband's gone a good many years now. You don't take in boarders or anyone like that, oh, do you? Oh, no. Just me and my pets here. They're company enough. I wonder if you'd explain that laundry piled up in the bed there in the next room, ma'am. Uh, what's that? The men's shirts, stockings, the underwear. They're right there in the bed there. Well, I usually try to keep things in better order than that. Just some laundry I do, Sergeant. Little odd jobs for some of the bachelor men in the neighborhood. I do it as a favor for them. You're sure about that, Miss Raw? Ma'am? What do you want Ernest for? Why do you have to chase after him all the time? Persecute him? We're not persecuting him. Ever since he's come here from Arkansas, it's been nothing but police chasing after him. Can't you give Ernie a chance? All he wants is a chance. He told me so himself. We've checked through his record, Miss Rolfe. He's had all the chances in the world, and nobody's persecuting him. Then why are you chasing him again? Hunting him down? Why don't you leave him alone for a spell? Give him a chance to get a job, do something. Why are you chasing him? Well, this is a robbery charge, Miss Rolfe. He's been positively identified. He and Henry Moss forced their way into an old couple's home a few weeks back. They tortured the old man, and they beat him till he was unconscious. That's what we want Ernie for. How'd you know it was Ernie? You could have made a mistake. No mistake, ma'am. The victims identified his picture. There wasn't a doubt in their mind. And where is he? You sure that's the truth? You sure it's Ernie again? Yes, ma'am. Again. You can have all the proof you need. And the last time he told me he swore on the memory of his own mother. He swore he wouldn't do anything wrong again. I guess I just don't know, Ernest. Where is he, ma'am? You want to tell us? It's the last time, Sergeant. I'm sorry. Ernie, that is last time. Yes, ma'am. He's sleeping. The room over the garage. You'll find him there. Ernest Windsor was apprehended and placed under arrest. His room was searched, as well as the entire home of his aunt, Mrs. Marie Rolfe. We failed to find a trace of any of the jewelry stolen from Mr. and Mrs. McClung. After we made arrangements for a stakeout on the house, Windsor was taken downtown to the interrogation room, where Jess Gonzalez, Ben, and I questioned him for five hours. He refused to tell us anything. At a special show-up, he was positively identified as one of the hold-up men by the two victims. Windsor was booked at the main jail on suspicion of 211 PC. The investigation went on. Every possible lead on the other suspect, Henry Moss, was checked out. We got nowhere. It was obvious that either Moss was in possession of all the jewelry stolen from the McClungs or it had been hidden away someplace, known only to Windsor and Moss. From time to time, we had Windsor taken from his jail cell for questioning. It wasn't hard to tell he was bothered with the possibility that perhaps Moss had run off with the entire loot and was enjoying himself while Windsor spent his time in jail. We worked hard on that particular angle while we questioned him, but Windsor still refused to break to give us any kind of a lead on Moss. A month passed, Wednesday, November 8th. Sure working out into a dull routine, a full month. We got exactly what we started with. Yeah. If we can only get Windsor to break it, it'd sure do a lot toward wrapping this thing up, wouldn't it? I don't know what he figures he's going to gain, but keep him quiet. Yeah. Gonzalez and Johnny Powers said they were checking out a tip from some informant this morning. Supposed to know where Henry Moss is. I wonder if they found any luck. They ought to be back by now. Yeah. Go ahead. Hey, Jess. Oh, hi. How about it? You do any good this morning? Oh, not a bit. Informant didn't even show up. Johnny's going to meet him this afternoon. Doesn't look to be very much. How about you fellas? Same, Jess. We're going as slow as you are. I get it. Robbery, Friday. Yeah, George. Uh-huh. Third and Main? You sure, huh? Right, yeah, right away. Well, maybe we got a break. What is it? Henry Moss, he tried to hock a ring at a pawn shop, Third and Main, about 20 minutes ago. He make it? Well, the pawnbroker stalled him. He didn't know for sure that the guy was hot. Well, how's it stand? Moss said he'd come back to close the deal. When? Half an hour. 11.55 a.m., a special detail of men, including Gonzalez and Powers, Ben and myself, were sent to cover the pawn shop near 3rd and Main. Gonzalez and Powers staked out in stores adjoining the place. Ben and I were stationed inside the pawn shop. Another team of men covered the rear exit. We waited. The suspect, Henry Moss, failed to show at the appointed time. We kept waiting. 1 p.m., 1.30. No sign of him. At 1.45 p.m., a young-looking, dark-haired man in a neat gray suit entered the shop and approached the manager at the rear counter. 
There wasn't any mistaking him, Henry Moss. He surrendered himself without even protesting. We took him to the city hall to the interrogation room where we started to question him. Meantime, Gonzalez and Powers located the apartment where the suspect had been staying. His rooms and personal belongings were searched and every piece of the missing jewelry recovered. Surprisingly enough, in contrast to his partner, Ernie Windsor, Moss was cooperative, even obliging. We had a stenographer take his full statement. And then we got ready to move him over to the main jail for booking. Just a couple of questions before we leave, Moss. Sure, Sergeant. Go ahead. We've had you in here before. How come all the cooperation this time? Why not? I had it figured before time. If you got me, you'd have everything you need on me. Wouldn't do much good putting in a beef, would it? Whose idea was it to start with, Moss? The hold-up deal. Yours, or was it Windsor's? Both of us, I guess. I didn't want to get rough with the old man. I mean, the way Ernie did. That part I didn't like. All I wanted was the loot. Ernie just lost his head. Too bad. All right, you ready to go? Anytime, Sergeant. Hey, I wonder if I could ask a favor. What's that? Well, it's going to get a little tough in there in that jail. Wonder if we couldn't stop for a good steak and some French fries first, huh? Maybe some good restaurant around here? No, it won't work, Moss. You know I wouldn't try anything. You put your order in a long time ago, mister. What do you mean? When you worked over that old couple. Yeah? That's when you ordered jail food. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 2nd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 88, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Ernest Windsor and Henry Moss were tried and convicted on one count of first-degree robbery and one count of assault with intent to do great bodily harm. Both men are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. First-degree robbery is punishable by imprisonment for no less than one, nor more, than ten years. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Radio Days, your home for the best of Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note, don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.